Well, it is uh, what uh, has traditionally been called in, in the church calendar Holy Week, uh, that, that week where we kind of remember those, those series of events uh, in those last days uh, before the crucifixion. Palm Sunday, we're going to look at John chapter 12 in just a moment as we, we look at that triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. And then uh, Monday, Thursday, which is a remembrance of uh, those moments when, when Jesus was in the upper room with those disciples, and we're going to celebrate uh, communion today around the bread uh, and the cup. And then, of course, Good Friday, where we hopefully find time to pause, to reflect, to remember, to celebrate, to give thanks for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we'll be gathered together to celebrate the hope that we have, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday morning. And so I, I just encourage you just to, to even personally try to utilize this week just to, to just re-immerse yourself in all that Christ Jesus has done for us, marked uh, by these days. As we think about this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we think about uh, the, the, the coming of, of a king. Uh, and uh, I, I read uh, a number of years ago about a coronation that uh, was what's much more elaborate uh, than that of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It was December 4th, 1977, in Bengai, the capital of Central African Empire. The world press witnessed the coronation of His Imperial Majesty, Bokassa I. The price tag was $25 million for this one event designed by a, a French, choreographed by a French designer. That was in 1977 dollars. Some of you can do the inflation calculation from there. At 10.10 a.m., the morning, uh, the, the, bla the, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of His Majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokassa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Badal Bogassa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillar to the left of the throne. Catherine followed the favorite of Bokassa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lanvian of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor had arrived in a gold eagle bedeckled imperial coach drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery just like what you almost wore this morning, right? <laughs> On his head, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman councils of old, a symbol of the favor of the gods. And as the sacred march came to a conclusion, Bokassa seated himself in his $2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and as Napoleon had done 173 years before, he took his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with 80-carat diamond, and placed it upon his head. Unfortunately, Bokassa's reign 
was not quite as imposing as his coronation. Just two years later, Bocasa was out of the country. The French had engineered a successful coup. Unfortunately, it was too late for the 200 children that had been executed because they had complained about the expense of their school uniforms. Jesus entered into Jerusalem as a different kind of king. And the thing that I want you to see as we perhaps walk through this passage that may be very, very familiar to many of us in the room is that Jesus didn't meet everyone's expectations. He didn't meet everybody's expectations of what a king should be and do and conduct themselves. But he did fulfill the Father's purpose for his life. And and I got to tell you, there's a part of me that says we don't need to talk about anything else. We could just leave it right there. That if every one of us got to the point where we said, I'm not going to meet everyone's expectations in my life, but God help me to fulfill the Father's purposes for my life. Uh, We would live differently. We would live distinctly. We would live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And so I want us to look at this different kind of king, and and we'll kind of uh, walk through John's uh, record of this, and we'll draw uh, from some of the other uh, places in Scripture that mention this as well. But but what I want you to see is, is not just the activity of this different kind of king, Uh, but I want us to get a glimpse into the heart of this different kind of king. And along the way, we're going to ask some questions, and I hope those questions may be some that will serve us in these moments as we prepare in a few minutes to take up the bread and the cup, Uh, but also questions that might uh, allow God's Spirit to continue to shape our heart so that more and more it becomes like the heart of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's coming in with a broken heart. He's coming in with a broken heart. In John's gospel in chapter 12, we start with this record of his triumphal entry in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast as they're gathering for the feast of the Passover heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now let's pause right there. Uh, just uh, even in these moments, there, there's this crashing of all of these, all of these messianic expectations. They're crying out, Hosanna, which save us now. It, it is directly drawn from the 118th Psalm, verses 25 and 26. And even that, that section of the Psalm is part of a larger section of Psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 it is sometimes referred to as the, the Egyptian Halal that was oftentimes sung at the Passover, sung as people were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. It was a celebration of all that God had done to set his people free. But it was also a looking forward, a looking forward to to the one who was going to come, the Messiah, who was going to set the, the nation free. And there's all these expectations of what that Messiah is going to be like. But we get a glimpse from Luke's gospel as to what's going on in Jesus' heart as he makes this approach. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Oh, there were people who were celebrating and crying out. They didn't know what they were actually crying out for. They didn't know what their deepest need was for. And as Jesus saw them in, in, in their blindness, in their, their inability, their unwillingness to, to grasp who he was and what he was calling them to, uh, it broke his heart. And it gives me pause as we approach this table made possible by this king. And I have to ask, does my heart break? over the things that break the heart of God. You see, sometimes it's easy for us to look at people with a a sense of (laughs) self-righteousness, to to look at people with a a hint of judgment and condemnation, a sense of at least mild superiority. When Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, (laughs) he who was superior, He who was morally without stain. His heart was broken. Could it be that what the world around us needs is not men and women with a spirit of condemnation, but a spirit of brokenness? Our hearts breaking. Yes, speak truth, speak it with love but speak it out of a heart that's broken to see people far from God, to see people disillusioned and and disoriented to the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. Does my heart break over the things that break the heart of God? As this king is coming into Jerusalem, he's coming with a broken heart, the, the brokenness over what sin does. And how it distorts and destroys does my heart break over the reality of what sin does. But not only does this king come with a broken heart, but I want you to see he comes with a humble and an obedient heart. A humble and obedient heart, John continues in his gospel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Here's this crowd of folks and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're, they're, they're shouting out. And, and on the other hand, there, there are, there's a group of folks that are plotting and, and, and disgusted and worried about the increasing popularity of Jesus. And all the while he comes in with a humble and an obedient heart. And he comes in on all things a donkey. <laughs> 
Now listen, if you're a conquering king, you come in in a chariot, right? (laughs) If you're a conquering king, you, you at least come in on a mighty horse, right? I mean, my goodness, Bokasa, I mean, he had like this chariot and this team of horses, right? But Jesus, God in the flesh, chose a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, mentioned there in the text. Because even though there was the crowd around him shouting, he was focused not on their adulation, but on fulfilling the purposes of God. And in those moments, as I think about the heart of my king, and I think about approaching this table, I need to ask, what gets my attention? The shout of the crowd or the voice of God? What gets my attention, the the latest thing that's gone viral, (laughs) or the voice of my God? Whose pleasure do I seek the most? And as Jesus comes with this humble posture big upon this donkey, The disciples don't get it in the moment. But they later begin to put the pieces together and they begin to understand that, uh, that it, it, he was pointing even beyond himself that it wasn't just about a man in a moment, but it was about bringing glory to God. And, I, and I, in those moments, it, it presses us to think when I'm experiencing triumph, whether it's triumph in my life personally, maybe it's a career triumph, maybe it's a, a financial triumph or a, uh, an academic or an athletic achievement or whatever it might be, do my actions say, look at me, or do they say, look at God? Do I point beyond myself to the power and the purposes and the love of God? You see, that's, that's what you see throughout the Scripture. You see, Joseph, when he's dragged before the Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, all this that they're, they're, they're going to be celebrating as they point toward the activity of God and freeing them from Egypt, and he's, he's, he said, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph, uh, whose heart's been shaped by God, says, no, 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 I can't, but God can When Moses was leading the people out and that Passover had taken place that they're gathering now in Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate, and that Moses, they come to the Red Sea, and as Moses stands before them, he he stands and says, it's not, watch me do this. It's stand and see the salvation, the deliverance of the Lord. Daniel even as the nation had come under judgment in a foreign land, as he's given opportunity to interpret a dream, says, it's not me, but God. It's God who gives this dream. 
that in that moment of exaltation, that moment of triumph, that moment where, where it, all that's in our flesh would say, look at me, they say, it is not me, but it is God. This different kind of king comes with a broken heart, with a humble and obedient heart, but also a sacrificing heart. A sacrificing heart. Let's continue with John's narrative, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Those who came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How interesting it is that, that as, as Jesus is, is approaching, there's, there's a crowd that's heard tales of his miracles that are crying out. There are, there are Jews over here who are plotting and, and working in unbelief, and yet there are some Greeks who are looking for him. A glimpse of the fact that what Christ is about to do is not merely for a Jewish nation but it is for all men and all women, for all people of all nationalities, every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and the, the crowd is in anticipation of a conquering Messiah who will restore the, the, the fortunes of the nation of Israel, who will cast off the, the, the oversight, uh, the, the, the rulership of Rome. And instead, Jesus comes as one who will give his life. He is coming as one who will fulfill his kingly role, not in this moment by conquering the rule of Rome, but by dying and reproducing his life in the lives of others. And the principle that immediately jumps out as one that he's taught all along the way and now he is getting ready to teach and model in the most powerful of ways. And that is that life comes only by death and denial of self. That when we think we, we grab hold of our life and hold on to it, we actually are, are in the process of losing our life. That there's always a, a cross before there is a resurrection. And so again, if we go back to Luke's gospel, we find the words off of Jesus' lips perhaps ringing again in the minds of his followers. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There were some folks from the United States who had gone to, to visit some missionaries. And they had gone and these missionaries were in a very, very remote 
place trying to reach uh, people that had not been reached with the gospel and they were, were, were cut off from all the things that we think are so essential to life, right? All of the, the conveniences of, of modern civilization. And during the visit, one of the, one of the folks from the, the state said, said do, you, do, you, do, you, do you miss it? Do you just miss being here so cut off from civilization? I mean, it seems like you have buried yourself out here. Missionaries thought for a moment. So that we haven't buried ourselves. We're planted we're planted here by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because it is only in death and denial of self that we find true life. It is only as we lose our life, losing it to the rulership of the King, that we actually discover the life we were designed for. And so as we prepare for the bread and the cup, I ask you, am I willing? Am I willing to do whatever Christ calls me to do? That's a, that's a biggie, isn't it? That's a biggie. But if he is king, if he is the one who has the right to rule, and by the way, the one that has the right to rule, his rule is always right. You understand that? then am I willing to do whatever it is that Christ calls me to do? He had a sacrificing heart, but I want you to see two other aspects of his heart in this passage. He, he had, had a troubled heart as he came into Jerusalem. Look at the next few verses there, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. In these, these moments, it, it, it reverberates those of us who are familiar with the story of, of the prayer that he, he cried out in the anguish of Gethsemane, that, Father, if it is possible to let this cup pass before me, because he understands that as he's coming into Jerusalem, he understands what is ahead. He understands that he is going to be absorbing into him his own being the very wrath of God against sin. And understandably, it creates such trouble. And again, it raises the question for me, am I more interested in being comfortable or in being conformable? Am I more interested in being comfortable? Let me avoid this hardship. Let me avoid this difficulty. Get me out of this tight situation. Or in being conformed? To the image of Jesus Christ. This young man by the name of Ralph Kuyper, he was when he was a student. Ralph had had uh, this a terrible uh, time with with his eyesight, and it was it was such a such a, a burden 
uh, for him. He had, had been born with very bad eyesight and consequently had had a sense of uh, handicapped uh, throughout his years of study for the ministry. And he fretted about it and, and cried out, perhaps like Paul, multiple times for this to be taken from him. And he said one day he was sitting in the library, struggling to study because of his eyesight. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to him. He asked him, what is the chief end of man? Being a student of theology, he was familiar with the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that your chief end? The Spirit prodded. Of course, he quickly replied. At this point, Kuiper writes, the Holy Spirit got a bit discourteous. Which would you rather have, he asked, perfect eyesight or the privilege of glorifying me? The answer did not come so quickly that time. And as he sat there feeling just between him and God, he finally muttered out, there is no comparison. The only possible answer is the privilege of glorifying your name. Then he sensed God saying, why worry about the means I have chosen to have you glorify it? Am I more interested in being comfortable or in being conformable to the image of Jesus Christ? Am I more interested in being comfortable or in bringing glory to God? It's been said that in all of our lives, there'll come times when we must choose between one of two prayers. And we, it's fair to utter both of these prayers, but there may be moments that we have to choose. Father, save me from this hour. Or Father, glorify your name. In those moments... When the one who has the right to rule, rules in such a way that he chooses not to save us from that difficulty, not to save us from that challenge, not to save us from that mess, are we willing to say, Father, even in the midst of this mess, even in the midst of this pain, glorify your name. Paul wrote to the Philippians, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. That is someone who has wrestled to the point of saying, God, it is more important for me to be conformable than to be comfortable. It is more important for me to fulfill your purpose than for me to have an easy life. Whether in life or in death, that Christ will be honored in my body. One last 
part of this heart of a different kind of king. And that is he had an attracting heart, a heart that uh, attracted others to him. Look uh, again at the narrative as it unfolds there, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This king is entering into Jerusalem. All this donkey and the crowd is shouting. They have all of their expectations of what a king should do and how a king should rule and what his next move should be. But he knows where he's going. He knows where he is headed. He understands the cross is ahead, that he is going to be lifted up. See, the cross is the divinely ordained dividing point in all of human history. Uh, the cross comes to that point and you have to decide who this Jesus is. Is he really God in the flesh? Who, and that cross is significant for my life and your life now, 2,000 years later and for all eternity? Or is he just another mistaken person who was killed for his beliefs, crushed under the power of a mighty Roman government? You have to decide. Paul understood that the cross was the dividing point. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the, through the holy folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews... Demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." You see, in these moments, we, we come to understand the cross is this dividing line. It seems foolish. It seems uh, offensive to so many. And yet Jesus said it was the means by which the Father would draw people from all nationalities uh, to himself. And he goes on in verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become Sons of light. <laughs> Didn't fit their image of the Messiah or the King. This one who was going to be lifted up. What they didn't understand was that there was going to be a cross. That there was going to be a resurrection. <laughs> he was going to give his life. But it was going to be taken up again through the power of the resurrection. 
It is the attracting heart that was willing to sacrifice. And so as we think about the events of this Palm Sunday, as we get ready to approach the Lord's table, each of us must decide how we're going to respond to this different kind of king. We'll either do one of three things. We'll either believe in him, and I put that in quotation marks intentionally because we are filled with cultural Christians. Men and women who will testify, I, oh, I believe in him, but, but actually they, they just seek to use him. The crowd, oh, we believe in you as long as you fulfill what you want, we want you to do. Fix me, rescue me, save me, make me comfortable. I believe in you to the extent that I can use you. I would dare say perhaps one of the most common responses in our Western culture to those who believe, quote unquote, in Jesus. It's a surface level faith that seeks to use God instead of be used by God. Secondly, we can resent him and reject him. Even as some were doing in that moment and some are doing today. There resent any implications that there is a king who has the right to rule over my life and they will reject him. And we see that all over, don't we? Or we can trust him and follow him. You're not the king I expected, but you're the king that I needed. You're the perfect one that God has provided. Some parents were trying to help their children to understand this love of God in Christ Jesus. So they told them a story about a little boy. A little boy who had worked and he had saved his money to buy this, this model boat. And, and he, he worked painstakingly for weeks, putting all the pieces together. And it was, I mean, it looked magnificent. He had done such an incredible job with it. And he was so excited that day. He took it out to the lake and he put it on the water. And, and he kind of watched as the, the wind began to, to move it across the water. And he was so excited about it uh, until the wind shifted direction and started to pick up power and suddenly that boat was was out in the water and he couldn't get to it and he was he was frantic and he was running around the edges trying to figure out a way to get to the boat but eventually the boat got out of his sight and it seemed lost forever and then one day he's walking by this store in this community and he sees in the window his boat <laughs> He, he goes in and he's so excited. He says, he says, Mister, he said, you have my boat. I want my boat back. And the guy says, well, young man, he said, I paid good money for that boat. If you want that boat, you're going to have to buy it. And so the little boy walks out discouraged. He begins to work and save his money asked the man not to sell it to anybody else and he, he works for weeks upon weeks and saves his money 
And finally he has enough and he goes back into that store and he buys his boat back. And as he's walking out of the store, he has it in his hands. And he said, you are twice mine. I made you and now I've bought you. You belong to me. That's what our different kind of king says. I made you, created you, and through his shed blood on the cross, he bought us. We belong to him. The only question is, how will we respond to this different kind of king? Let's go to him together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, how we thank you (laughs) that you were not the king we expected, but oh, you are the king that we most desperately needed. Father, thank you for what you have done for us that we could have never done for ourselves. And Father, on this Palm Sunday, as we reflect on all the one who came into Jerusalem for a purpose, who came to rescue us and redeem us and save us, and just a few moments as we take up uh, that, that symbol of the broken body and the shed blood, Father, we say thank you. Thank you for sacrificing for us. And Father, just in these last few moments before we take up this bread and the cup, would you help us to see any area of our life where we have tried to use you instead of trusting and following you, where we have resented you and rejected you. Father, shape us so that our hearts become more and more like the heart of our King. I'm just going to ask you just to take a few moments just to be still in the